to the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing's podcast, The Wellbeing Connector, where through our guests, we explore ideas for making healthcare a better place to work and serve. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Today, I am so excited to have the opportunity to bring you Dr. Herbert Schum. Herb is a family physician by training and an administrator by experience. He received his medical degree from Wright State University School of Medicine and his residency in family practice at St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Covington, Kentucky. He is board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine, and for 11 years before becoming a healthcare executive, he had a busy private practice that included obstetrics. He then served for 15 years as the Vice President of Medical Affairs at St. Rita's Health Partners. In the fall of 2012, he became President of St. Rita's Professional Services, and in 2016, he moved into a new role leading provider professional development for Mercy Health. Herb is married to Paula, his wife for 38 years. They have two adult children, Mallory and Jacob. Herb serves as chair of the Huntington University Board of Trustees, and he enjoys woodworking, building folk instruments, and investing in the next generation of leaders. Well, thank you, Herb. It's a pleasure uh, meeting you and getting a chance to talk to you on the podcast today. Great. Thanks. It's a privilege to be with you today. So I have uh, know a little bit about you, and I know you were a, a family physician for many years, a vice president of medical affairs, but now you're, you're in a – actually, I think you have two roles. Uh, one of them is the uh, um, system medical director of provider and professional development, and the other one is a title of vice president of medical director of education and physician engagement. And I wanted to just get a sense for what are you doing those current roles, and uh, what are your two organizations, and how do you manage that? You know, it's interesting. The titles really identify that I do education for physicians and advanced practice clinicians. Um, I also work with engagement of how do we keep people engaged with our organization, but also with their career. But I'll tell you what's really behind all of that is looking at our physicians and our APC's well-being, and particularly looking at things that play into burnout, that contribute to it, and what organizationally we can need to do. Uh, to really combat that. So how did you get into that? How did how that how'd that become the priority for you? You know, I started out as just a country family doc. And uh, about 10 years into that, got a little bit restless and moved into the VPMA, as you mentioned. Through that, I really began to realize that I had an empathy for people and what they were going through as physicians. And with that, then uh, about 20 years into that, I had the opportunity to move into a home office position doing provider development. So provider development, I didn't know what it was. And actually, the folks who asked me to do it, I said, what, what is this? What do you expect? And the response was, we don't know either, Herb. But what we know is we employ a lot of physicians and APCs, and we don't know how to make sure we're engaged. We don't know how to develop leaders, and we don't know what we don't know. So you help us figure it out. Wow. So what did you figure out? What do they need? Well, the, you know, one thing I figured out was uh, we had a whole lot of teaching going on that we didn't realize. Uh, we had uh, several residency programs. Actually, at that time, we had uh, 40 residency programs and over 400 residents under our roof across our various markets that we had. But another thing I came to realize, we weren't meeting the needs of our providers at the phases, the phases of their uh, career. Uh, 
So in other words, when they were coming on board, how do we get them acclimated? And how do we realize that this is a pretty anxiety-producing part of getting up to speed as an attending physician? How do we mid-career deal with some of that midlife crisis that, gee, uh, there's got to be something more, or more importantly, I know I can't keep on this treadmill. And then as we get near the end of our phase of life, you know, as physicians, we don't do a very good job of saying, we're going to retire. And what does that look like? Uh, There's reasons for that. But we said, hmm, how do we do that differently so that we can help people have meaningful and significant contributions even after they stop their clinical career? So you're on the full phase, I assume, from residence through retirement and through helping people adjust in all, in all phases. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. It's exciting. Oh, it is. A lot. There's a lot going on. And you mentioned 40 residency programs. So it's, it's quite a breadth of activity. It is. And, you know, it's much like family dynamics. You've got the parent-child, but you've got the grandparent-child. And how do we make sure that they're actually contributing and encouraging each other? So how do you do that? Well, so what we do, you know, if we go to well-being, a couple of things is how do we improve social interaction so people get together, especially in a day and age that we're digitally separated or pandemic separated. Another part is how do we help people realize that they really do have autonomy, they have choice? And then finally, how do we help people stay connected with their calling or their purpose? And, you know, the challenge with calling and purpose Sometimes we're not even sure what it is. Other times it changes as we go in our career and we learn more about ourselves or more about what we're passionate about. And so a big part of that is helping people to just take the time to step back, assess where they're at, assess where they need to plug in and get connected. And how do they bring meaning and purpose to what they do? So interesting. So your, your, um, your empathy is really at the individual level, but your work is really organizational-wide. And so I imagine you must have a, developed quite a strategy and plan for how to develop that. Well, it is interesting because that personal level helps me keep grounded and helps to make sure what I'm doing actually brings value, has meaning, and doesn't just add work. But when we look at it at a system level, uh, one of the things I love about the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing are their four pillars that are in their strategy. And that allows me to take those, apply them to our organization. And whenever I share what we're doing, make sure that anything we're doing fits within those four pillars. Wow. So the four pillars really do define your strategy then. That, that's, that's the basis of how you've organized it. It absolutely does. And, and that's one of the greatest values of being a member with the coalition is, you know, people will send you things and say, oh, we should do this, we should do that. But when I say, do you know what our strategy is? They're like, wow, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And you can step back and make sure that things fit within that strategy. But you also make sure as you do an annual plan that you make it fit within what you're doing. For those of an audience who may not be familiar with the four pillars, can you uh, briefly review them for us? Sure. So, you know, I start with the three that are not individual because that way people don't put up a wall when I talk with them. So uh, business operations and quality, uh, a big part that's within that bucket is the electronic medical record and all of the implications that come with that. Then there's the piece with culture, which is really defining how you communicate with each other. Uh, For us, it's defining our code of conduct, what we expect from each other. Then the third pillar is one of my favorite and that's learning. And within that, we have a leadership development program. Uh, Within that, we are actually 
uh, fine-tuning our peer review so that it goes into learning. And then we also have within that uh, access to virtual library across our ministry, and we have access to CME and CME programs that are not only relevant, but help them to understand our culture. Now, that fourth pillar, and this is the one I always wait till last when I'm talking with someone, is that resilience. Uh, those tools that help me as an individual. So three-fourths of my work is helping to build organizational pieces that help support your wellness. That last piece is making sure you have resources to help yourself. So that's those are things like counseling, coaching. Uh, those are things like um, we're working on peer support. How do we help each other? How do we identify somebody that may be struggling and have tools that we can reach out to them? Uh, and an essential part of that is with our counseling, it also is extended to the family members so that if somebody is struggling, you can bet their family is too. And so we want to make sure they have resources for them. So as you know, the um, coalition also has the uh, Medis Medicus Integra Recognition Award. Have you got involved with Medicus Integra? So I did. Um, now, early on, uh, when we I was working with Mercy, this is before we integrated with Bon Secours, at that point, we had 23 uh, hospitals we were working with or that were within our company. I knew I could never change 23 medical staffs. But we had one medical group across all of those. And I knew that if I worked with the medical group, we can make a difference there uh, because we had consistent leadership. Uh, we could make our own policies. We could do the things we need to do. So I grabbed on to the Medicus Integra uh, process, applied it to the medical group, talked to Ted and Deanna and said, hey, can we do this as a medical group? Here's why we can make a difference. And so then went to the president of our medical group and said, hey, here's what we'd like to do. Uh, she was 100% in favor of what we were doing. And so we went ahead and achieved the Medicus Integra for the medical group within um, what we refer to as Legacy Mercy. Congratulations. Thanks. It was, it was an honor. But you know what was really an honor, Michael, was when they did the site survey. Now, this is pre-pandemic because we were spread across two states. We actually did it all as a virtual conference throughout the day. And at the end of the day, I realized we had over 50 people that had a significant role in us achieving Medicus Integra and just realizing the team that came together above and beyond their typical work because they saw the importance of the well-being of our physicians and our APCs was that was rewarding. Oh, wonderful. So what was was, was there any particular uh, major learning that came through through that process that you didn't know before or uh, just tell me what the biggest learning was? So I think our biggest learning was to realize that we had a lot of pieces, but they weren't connected. Um, consequently, people didn't see it as a, a comprehensive strategy. So that brought us together uh, to connect the dots. It also uh, made us look at the different partnerships that we already had that we could truly leverage. And because of that, we actually helped each other to grow. Wonderful. So how was the all these initiatives, how were they perceived by the people in the organization? Did uh... Um, what was, what were their thoughts? Well, we had to be very careful that we didn't overwhelm people and, you know, say, gee, I've got a toolbox full of 10 different hammers. What do we do with it? And so what we tried to do, one is we always use, um, the diagram from the coalition whenever we describe it with those four pillars that I mentioned. So anytime we talk about it, we always go there. We also have a slide that talks about the occupational risk of being a physician. 
So the, the things about addiction, burnout, um, the things about uh, death by suicide, and that helps people get grounded. So we're in agreement on that. And so from there, then we do a lot of listening and we listen to what people need or we listen to, you know, in a particular market, what is your biggest stressor right now and what can we do and how can we help with it? Do you think people in general recognize uh, um, how much physicians are suffering and their how much their people and have feelings, uh, illnesses, relationships? How much is that, how much is that appreciated? Yeah, I think there are some that really do. What I find is, as I present to groups, there's always a few in the group that are like, wow, I didn't know that. And so there's that awareness that you've now raised. But also what we try to do is share with them what our approach is and also how they can help us. I'll, I'll give you an example. When we look at our, our electronic medical record, we have the trainers. They're right beside our, our physicians and our APCs helping them. But what they don't realize is they're also a friend and a colleague. They're a confidant. The, the physicians will share things with them that, that they won't share with anyone else. They also see when that physician may be struggling. And so what we've done is, is take that group and look and say, look, here are the backgrounds behind physician health. By the way, you are in a sacred space and that you get to be with them. And by the way, you know what? You can really call out when you see something that, boy, they just don't seem themselves. Call it out. And here are tools that are available you can offer them. Or you know what? Here's my cell phone. You can refer them to me and we'll get them help. Oh, that's great. So do you have any um, stories of successes you want us to share of uh, things that you the, the organization, uh, the individual stories that warm the heart? You know, yeah, let me, let me share one with you. It's in, um, let me just say there are folks in our organization that did this, that made it happen. I didn't. We just identified and facilitated. But during the pandemic, I had uh, uh, several of our psychologists, psychiatrists call, and I, I would talk with them and say, what are you seeing? What are, what are you identifying? And they, they all came back and said, we want to be able to help. We're, we're not running a ventilator. We're not running a COVID clinic. We realize that, but how can we help? And so when we put our heads together, we realized the way they could help is be available to their peers. And so this group of seven psychiatrists, psychologists actually put together just a simple brochure. By the way, they're across five states with their name, their photo, and their personal cell phone. Now, this is what blew me away, their personal cell phone. And they said, Herb, you can share this with anyone. Within the first two months, they had 30 people call them wow. that were physicians or APCs. And, um, you know, they, they encountered all the way from just a, Gee, a collegial conversation to some that actually need a treatment to a couple that actually were suicidal, you know, and, and that to me is people just helping people, um, you know, by the end of three months, they had 48 people reach out and call them. And that's about taking down barriers for people to get help. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's wonderful. So uh, you mentioned COVID-19. Uh, how did that, how has that affected your work in the last uh, six months or so? Well, so for one thing, I haven't been back in my office since March 12th. Hmm. Um, before that, I was traveling all around these different states. I haven't been on a plane since March 9th, um, like everybody else. But but through, you know, our video conferencing, we've been able to stay in touch. And, um, you know, what we're finding is people are battling more with isolation than they have before. 
Uh, they're battling with the moral distress uh, because one, you have the uncertainty of how to treat things, but also the resources. Um, and we know that that alcohol use is up. And so if there ever was a time that wellness was important, it's actually more important now. And so we're doing it. But what is neat is we're able to pivot. And so some of the things we did before that required travel that took people away from their families and their patients, we can now do as a video conference. Um, we can do as a webinar. And it's actually improved our um, um, attendance and our engagement in the, in the activities that we've put on. So is that uh, something you're doing during the pandemic or is that going to be the new way of doing things then? Well, that's a great question. I think it's going to be both. Um, I think it's going to be the way we do a lot of things. My concern is I hope that the video doesn't replace the face-to-face because we still need that face-to-face interaction, um, especially in a time in the future when it becomes safe. And, And I hope we don't pivot and say, well, it's so easy not to have to go to a meeting or go meet somebody and we lose out on that personal connection that we really do need. And our, you mentioned the isolation. Have people locally been able to support each other as well during the pandemic? I mentioned you mentioned video, but what about colleagues working together as the stress of the situation where the pandemic changes over time? Yeah. So early on, what we faced uh, was uh, people were not able to. And even some of our offices or our clinics, they may be kind of split up and redeployed to do other things. Now, what we where we're at is they're coming back together into their tribe, if you will, uh, and getting reconnected with each other uh, from that. But we still are not able to bring large groups together, um, you know, for the the webinars. Another one is for our uh, new physician and APC welcome that we do. We used to bring everybody in a market together that was new so they could sit together and then we would meet as a system virtually. So it was a blended approach. Um, Now they're not able to meet in person. Uh, and so we're working hard and look forward to the day that we can get back together in person. So what's your, what's 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 your plans going forward? Uh, what do you what do you what do you what do you think are the biggest changes you expect over the next five years going forward? Yeah, I think our biggest changes. Number one uh, is going to be how do we get people personally connected at a time that everything is is separating us. So even you know we do so much digitally now that we don't have to go to the hospital. We don't have to go to the doctor's lounge. I don't have to go to radiology to look at films with a radiologist, but we need that social time. So, uh, for example, what we've done, uh, we combine all of these mandatory learnings that we do throughout the year into one event that socially allows us to come together. Now, this year, it's going to be virtual, but we come together in person and we learn together. Uh, We share together. We break bread together. uh, We spend time together. We plan on continuing that. Um, Our leadership development program, we are going to make it uh, virtual here at least the first of 2021, and hopefully by the fall be able to come together. But one of our key pieces with that is if uh, people are committing to spend time to develop as a leader, we want to not take away from their family. So we've included and invited their families to come with them uh, to the sessions. We have it at a water park, like a Kalahari or a Great Wolf Lodge. Uh, so the family can be together. We schedule the event so the evenings are free. They can be together as a family. But I think the future, we've got to make sure that we're valuing that family time uh, as as they come together. 
I think another piece is we, we've got to get better about mental health um, and really realize, and I think COVID brought it to the surface. One of my friends uh, who's a psychiatrist, he said, Herb, if somebody comes through COVID and they don't need mental health, there's a problem. That's abnormal. And, and I think there's some truth to that, that at any point in our life, we need that support. And so we've got to normalize the fact that we need mental health uh, along the way, just like we need to have a physical, just like we need our blood pressure check. Um, we need that uh, for each other. Um, I think the other magic is getting peers to look after peers. That has more influence at a time when, you know, there's a corporatization of medicine. But what really will make a difference is when a colleague or a peer calls you up and checks in on you. And do you see the stigma of being burnt out going decreasing now? Has it been effective in that regard? Or uh, are physicians still so into their work and so have the challenge of, of worrying about the stigma in terms of reaching out? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid the stigma is still there. Um, and the fear of getting help is still there. Uh, you know, even if we take it a step further with addiction, uh, one of the biggest barriers is people are afraid of losing their license uh, once we get through the denial. And so I think our work, uh, we have a lot of work to do to decrease that stigma uh, and to decrease the barriers for people to reach out and get help. So how do you, how do you reduce the stigma? You know, I'm not sure this is going to work, but here's our approach. Uh, we're working on how do peers reach out to peers, and and there's a, there's two reasons for that strategy. Number one, you know, how many times does somebody come to you and say, "Hey, I've got a friend who," and you and I both know what they're asking is about themselves. Well, I just quit worrying about that and say, you know what, I want you to come and let's figure out how to help your friend. Now that friend may be you, that friend may be your friend, but how do we do this in a way that you reach out and that you identify? When a friend may be having trouble, even if that's you, you know what resources are available and you know that it's okay to get help. So that's one. A second one is, how do we make sure that our systems are there to support them? And I'll give you an example. If, if I was battling with addiction, many times I will not get help because I'm afraid of losing my license. If I get over that and realize there's a health program that can help me through that in my particular state, then I'm still worried I'm going to lose my uh, health insurance, or I'm going to lose income. And so what we've been able to do is make sure that uh, any of the providers within a health program within your state is covered under our health benefit, at least as a tier two benefit. The second piece is if you're under treatment, and that treatment means you need to be off work, just like if you had surgery, you'd be eligible for short-term disability benefits. So you would have some wage support during that time you're getting treatment. Hmm. So Getting back to you, you're involved, you're a managing a very large system. And again, we started off by saying it started off with uh, individual empathy. H how do you stay connected to all that's going on? Because there's so many clinicians, there's so much, uh, there's so many people who do need help. How do you stay connected to the, the details of all that's happening in your system? You know, one of the things that we did is early on, and this is when we were working on the Medicus Integra um, uh, process, we developed what we called a provider well-being work group. I refuse to call it a committee because uh, that brings along a baggage, but it's a work group. And we meet every month as a group across the ministry to make sure that we have our pulse on what each market is experiencing, to roll out new ideas and make sure they make sense before we go any further, you know, to vet new ideas, 
uh, to learn from each other. Then in between those, I actually have an individual call with each of those markets. And it's only 30 minutes, but it's the folks in that market that I stay in touch with to say, okay, what's really happening? You know, tell me what's happening on the front line. Um, that makes a, a huge difference. Uh, the other is um, I stay in touch with our chief clinical officers in each of our markets to make sure that we're in sync with what they're uh, seeing. You know, through COVID, um, <laughs> I was getting personally disconnected, as you can imagine, being out of the office and not traveling. And so we created something we call the pause. And it's a daily eight minute, just step back, reflect. It's broadcast and then it's available on demand. But through that, I've been able to get connected with over 120 people across our ministry because we have a guest each day on that. And so that's allowed me to to stay connected with folks and learn about their passion and learn about how they're, how they're getting through the pandemic. Wow, that's great. So um, we're approaching uh, towards the end now. Did you have any other thoughts or reflections you want to share uh, to our audience today? You know, one thing I would say, sometimes it's hard to know where to start with this. And I would offer two pieces. One, look at what your organization's already doing. If it's an EAP program, if it's a uh, you have a behavioral health program, uh, you may have a leadership development program. Look at what those are, figure out how you can leverage that and build on what's already in place. The second is, don't worry about it being perfect. Actually, you're better off if it's not, and you just get started and get moving, but take people's feedback to continuously improve it. So you're better off moving your dot and making some progress than trying to make it perfect and never going anywhere. Oh, wonderful. Well, on that, Herb, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been wonderful. You have a wonderful uh, collection of insights and amazing experience. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. It's a privilege to be with you. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank Dr. Herbert Schum for joining us today and for sharing both his insights and personal story. Members of the Coalition can find Herb's contact information on the Coalition's website in the membership directory. If you wish to learn more about the Coalition, please visit our website at www.forphysicianwellbeing.org. You can also check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I also want to thank our volunteers and the staff from the Coalition who made this podcast possible. Finally, I'd like to thank ACESIS, A-C-E-S-I-S Incorporated, for sponsoring my time working on this podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing, its board, or other members of the Coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown, wishing our caregivers out there meaning, purpose, and joy in the practice of medicine. Together, we are stronger. Until next time. <laughs>